Good morning, ECC. It is good to see you all. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we will be camping out today. As we do our Rediscover Church series, just by way of reminder, last week we talked about discipling, and we defined discipling as helping others follow Jesus. There you go, helping others follow Jesus. And we said that's actually part of our discipleship is our discipling. Our discipleship here meaning how we individually follow Jesus. Jesus said, follow me, we follow him. And part of our following him is we make disciples, we help other, fo- other people follow Jesus, and we are discipled. We help others help, rather we let others help us follow Jesus. The word for that, helping others follow Jesus, you can figure that, you can phrase that as formative discipline. How you help someone become discipled, in other words, disciplined in following the Lord. But unsurprisingly, the other part of formative discipline is corrective discipline. As we learn to follow Jesus, the errors that will show themselves in our thinking, believing, or living will need to be corrected. And that's what we're talking about today. Church discipline, which is discipling, discipline, see the connection? Church discipline. And what is discipline? Simply defined, it is correcting sin. And as we look into this topic, I owe a lot to Jonathan Lehman in his little book, Church Discipline. If you want to read more about this, please go get a copy um, at the bookstore. Church Discipline by Jonathan Lehman. I highly, highly recommend it. And a lot of what we are going to be talking about is exactly that, church discipline, which is just correcting sin. Uh, A better definition from Aubrey is church discipline is the formal process that Jesus gave his church to address sin, especially unrepentant sin, in her midst. Now, if, if you're like me, you might be wondering, what's this phrase, church discipline? You might have been hearing it for the first time as I did a few years ago. You might even think it is harsh or brutal. Well, hang on, hold on, stick with it. And I hope to show us from Scripture why church discipline is a good Thing. Anything God gives is a good thing. You might there be thinking, why do we even have a formal process of correcting sin? What's that about? That sounds strange. Why are we having this formal process to correct unrepentant sin? Shouldn't we just be content with, we know Jesus, we've believed Jesus, he forgives our sins, and he will stick with us no matter what? Well, I'd say you're almost right if you think that way. You're almost right. But discernment is not the difference between what is right and wrong, and we want to be discerning. Discerning is the difference between what is right and what is almost right. So, I'll share with you two Gospels popularly preached in our world today. See if you can hear which one is right and which one is almost right. Okay? The Gospel tends to have five elements. It's a message about God man, Jesus Christ, our response, and the results of that response, okay? So, here's gospel number one. God is holy and loving, and he created man in his own image to obey him and display his character. But man 
sinned against God, bringing upon himself eternal separation from God and death and the just punishment of God. But God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, die on behalf of sinners, take on the punishment of God, which is death. And Jesus rose three days later and now offers humanity this beautiful gift of eternal life. And if we just believe, if we just believe, we will have eternal life, and in this life we will never go forsaken, and he will be with us no matter what until we go to heaven. Here's gospel number two. God is holy and loving and made man in his image to perfectly obey him and display his character, but man rebelled and sinned against God, brought God's just punishment upon himself, and therefore was eternally separated from God. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent Jesus Christ to live a perfect life, die on behalf of sinners, rise three days later, and offer this gift of eternal life to anyone who would repent and believe, repent and believe in him. And so for those who would turn away from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ as not just Savior but Lord, they would become part of the family of God, become part of the membership and fellowship of the church of Jesus Christ, and when they die, enjoy fellowship with the eternal chorus and the eternal congregation with God forever. Did you catch it? Difference between right and almost right. And that distinction matters when we talk about church discipline. Because if you and I believe in a God who is only a savior, who all we have to do is believe and we are good with him, then how we live doesn't matter. Then we can go about our happy way sinning and living however we like because we have a savior but not a lord. We have a forgiver but not a king. Ah, but the gospel doesn't just say believe. It says repent and believe. And those are not two separate things. They are one thing. Biblically, to believe in Jesus Christ is to turn away from sin. To turn away from sin is to believe in Jesus Christ. You can't separate the two biblically. And when we have not just one who forgives us of our sin, but a king who rules over us, then sin becomes incongruent with the life of a believer. Do you see? So what do we do when a believer has unrepentant sin in their lives? Because God designed you and I as humans and especially as Christians to display the holiness of his character. So what happens when someone's life is saying, I am not holy because my God is not holy. I'm just forgiven. What are we supposed to do with that? The answer, church discipline. And what I hope to leave us with today is a deep, deep sense of love for God and for one another that will compel us, force us, if you will, to address sin and correct sin. Aubrey preached on this a few weeks ago, but showed us the tightness between discipline and love. Hebrews 12, 6 and following, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And that's what we are after. That at the end of discipline, what you and I have is righteousness and peace with God and with one another. Now, if, again, if this seems strange to you, stick with it. Because I promise you, God is for you and not against you if you are in Christ. 
and he wants your joy. And what we'll be thinking about today is, what is church discipline? Why should we even practice church discipline? When should we practice church discipline? And how should we do that? How should we practice church discipline? If you're, if you're looking for, for a framework, that's it. It's also on the outlet. The, the outline is also in your bulletins. If you can turn there, if that will help you. And my prayer is that after our time together, you and I would have a deep sense of love for God and one another that will compel us to correct sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13, and then we will pray and dive in. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Would you help me step out of your way? Would you please speak to me and speak through me to the end that our lives may be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Forbid it, Lord, that anyone except you should get glory at this time. And so now, Lord, what we do not have, please give us through your word. What we do not know, please teach us through your word. And what we are not, please make us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is church discipline? Simply defined, church discipline is correcting sin. A broader definition, church discipline is the formal process that Jesus gave his church to address unrepentant sin. The fact of the matter is, correction is inevitable. Whether you're a student, whether you're a worker, whether you're a parent, whether you're a child, correction is inevitable. And church discipline is designed to do just that, correct sin and point the disciple to the righteous path. This formative discipline and this corrective discipline. And that's why we are correcting sin. And correcting sin should not ordinarily be this acrimonious, difficult, purely confrontational experience. And as, as we go along, I hope you see that that's not actually what it's designed to be. So what happens when normal correction fails? Well, we have to go for formal correction. Formal correction is the church, in other words, church discipline, is the act of a church removing an individual from membership and from partaking of the Lord's Supper. I'll repeat that. Church discipline is the act of removing an individual from membership in the church and from participation in the Lord's Supper. It is not an act of forbidding someone from coming to the public gatherings of the church. It is not that. It is the local church's statement, declaration, if you will, that it can no longer affirm a person's profession of faith. It can no longer call him or her a Christian. It is the church's refusal to give a person the Lord's Supper. You might have heard of the term excommunicating church discipline. Another phrase that is commonly used to describe it, especially the last part of church discipline, is excommunicating. Now, if you're like me, you probably grew up thinking excommunicating is that thing where we tie someone to the stake and set them on fire. Okay. No. Excommunicate, to excommunicate means to exclude from communion. Ex, exclude from communion. It means to exempt or exclude someone from the sign that they are a holy one who has fellowship or communion with the holy one. We don't give them that sign because their life is acting in living in contradiction to that sign. And now you're probably thinking, 
who has the authority to withdraw communion? If I want to take communion, I'll take communion. Who has the authority to tell me I'm not a member of a church? Answer, Jesus. Jesus gave his church that authority. Matthew chapter 18, from verse 15 to 17. Jesus speaking says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Pastor Aubrey is going to be dealing with this text more concretely in a couple of weeks, but two things I need you to notice here. That the goal of church discipline is that the sinner repents, is that they come back, that you win the brother. And then number two, that the church itself not only has the authority to do this, but the church should look different from the pagan or the tax collector. When this was being written, the pagan was someone who was not a member of the covenant community of God. They were not part of God's people. The tax collector, which is the only people that the Jews hated more than the Romans, were the people who had broken covenant with God, betrayed the covenant community, and were assisting those others to oppress the covenant community, thereby showing they've broken covenant with God. In other words, Jesus is saying his church, his covenant community, needs to be distinct, separate, holy, different, wholly devoted to him as compared to those who are pagans and tax collectors who are not part of his community. And he gives his church this judicial authority. That language of get two or three witnesses, that's from Deuteronomy 19 in how Moses and the Israelites were supposed to rend out judgments. That he's given his church the authority to say, this one, part of the community. This one, like a pagan or a tax collector. The church is the final court of appeal. So unsurprisingly, if the church is the final court of appeal, then most of how the Bible talks about church discipline is in everything before excommunication in everything before we have to go to the church as the final court of appeal. Consider Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Ephesians 5.11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. In other words, do this before it has to reach the church. Because by the time it's getting to the church, the church has to use its authority to revoke one's citizenship, if you will. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, from verse 1 and 2. Paul says in verse 2, actually from verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be, what's the word there? Removed from among you. Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, and like Jesus says, it is the church that has the authority to remove Someone from membership. The first Corinthians 4 to 5, he goes on and says, hand this person over to Satan. Now that sounds like scary language, right? It is scary language. But it's the exact same language Jesus was using. As a pagan and a tax collector, they are not part of the covenant community of God. 
and there are only two covenant communities, or rather, rather, there are only two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. There's no neutral kingdom. To be in the kingdom of God means you're not in the kingdom of Satan. To be in the kingdom of Satan means you're not in the kingdom of God. So when Paul says remove this person, it is remove them to what? Not a vacuum, not a neutral space. It is remove them back to the kingdom of Satan because though they say they're a Christian, their lives are saying they're part of a different, darker kingdom, Ephesians chapter 2. You know, in, in my country, and I'm sure in your country, probably every country in the world, you can be born in a country, but your citizenship can get revoked if you choose to join a foreign country's military. If today I choose to join the military of the Philippines, the government of Kenya will revoke my citizenship. And I can throw a hissy fit like, I, I was born in Nairobi, I lived in Nairobi, I, I speak Swahili. They'll be like, uh, sorry, the laws of this land say that we have the authority to revoke your citizenship because you decided to join a foreign military. And if that foreign country decides to attack us, you're not going to be deciding on the battlefield. Now, which side do I fight for? In much the same way, the church has been given God's authority to revoke their affirmation. They have been given God's authority to say, we cannot call that person a Christian. Now, our authority is not definitive. We are not saying this person is not a Christian. No, no, no. It's not definitive authority. It is declarative authority that we declare this person can no longer be affirmed by us to all the nations as someone who represents King Jesus and King Jesus' kingdom. To be a believer means we are a member of a church. To be a member of a church means we are part of this embassy. And this embassy has been given God's authority, quite literally, to correct sin. So, let me ask a question. Is that your view of the church? Is your view of the church... God's embassy that has the right to revoke someone's affirmation of faith and say, we are not going to affirm that, even my own? Or do you just see the church as a bunch of people who get no say in how I live? As a believer in Jesus Christ, you and I have a God-given responsibility to correct sin in our midst, to help other people see you're actually going wrong on this area or that area. Now, if when I said that, your chest rose with pride and you said, I'm going to make sure from today I show all of these guys the 15 places they've been going wrong, you've completely missed the point of authority. Authority is not given to the benefit of the person who has it. That's not how authority works. Authority is always for the benefit of others. Parents, we have a measure of authority over our children. What do we use that authority for? To bless them, feed them, raise them, provide for them, build their character, right? The church has been given authority to benefit one another and help them better follow Jesus Christ. So what is church discipline? It's correcting sin. Who should do that? Yes, that authority has been given to the church. And again, you might be there thinking, okay, man, I, I understand that, but look, if a grown man or grown woman wants to live in rebellion to God, that's their business. Let God judge that, either now or when they stand before God. Why is that any of my business? And based on the smiles in the room, I can see that tends to be our usual modus operandi. 
Well, why should we address that? Answer, we practice church discipline because we are new people who have a new love for God and for one another. You see, God has always been concerned. At the heart of Christianity is God's concern to save a people through his son Jesus Christ to display the holiness of his character. That's the whole game. He's going to display his character and display his holiness through a people. Old Testament and New Testament. That's Ezekiel chapter 36 where God says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among you, been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. When through you, through the people of God, I vindicate my holiness. Do you see? And how is he going to do it? Later he says he will give them a new heart, a new spirit. Take out their rock hard heart and give them a heart of flesh and move them to obey his commands, thereby displaying the holiness of his character. So it's no surprise that when Jesus comes, lives, dies, rises again, and we trust in him, what are we called? First Peter chapter 2, first from actually chapter 1 and 2. As, you, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. In all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Did you catch it? If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation that can now actually display the holiness of God. Christians, at the end of the day, are people who carry the holy name of God. A Christian is an ambassador of Jesus Christ who displays his character. A Christian is someone who has been so changed by Christ that they look like, think like, speak like, act like Christ and not like what they were before. Imagine if I came here. A friend of mine used, used this illustration. I, I showed up here and, you know, Pastor Ben says, okay, Christian is now going to come and, and preach. One minute passes, no Christian. Three minutes pass, I'm still not there. Five minutes, I show up, I'm running, I'm sweating. I'm like, sorry, sorry, guys, sorry, guys, sorry, I'm late. You know what happened? I was driving to church, and I got a flat tire. So I changed the tire, managed to change it, put it in the boot, and after I was about, after I changed the tire and I was about to walk back into the car, I got hit by a bus moving at 120 kilometers per hour. It hurt, but I shook it off, entered the car, and I drove here. That's, that's why I'm, I'm late. I'm sorry, guys. Would you believe that? I think it's safe to say that if I got hit by a bus moving at 120 kilometers per hour, I'm going to look a little bit different. <laughs> Assuming I live. I think it's safe to say that if you and I get hit by the Holy Spirit, we're going to look a little bit different. Assuming we live. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. A Christian is someone who has a new nature, is part of a new family, the family of God, and therefore bears the family resemblance. And that's all holiness is. It's people who look like their father, who act and think like their father. That's all that is. And so the Lord's Supper 
is saying these people, it's drawing a little circle around them and saying these people in a dark world, these people are the light. The Lord's Supper shows us, okay, this is the family of God. These are the guys who bear the family resemblance. These are the guys who display his character. And unsurprisingly, those guys have a newfound love for the person who is now their father and a newfound love for the people who are now their siblings. And so they work hard to present a good witness of who this God is. They've left the kingdom of darkness. They're now in the kingdom of light. And church discipline is designed to make that separation clear. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 2, he says, this person should be removed among you. That you people should be mourning, is what he's telling the church in Corinth, that this person is engaged in sin. What I've come to learn from my own small, selfish little heart and in my own lived experience is that anger, or rather selfishness tends to be angered, but love tends to be grieved. If we love the sinner, Paul is telling them, you will be grieved, you will mourn that he is in constant, consistent, unrepentant sin. That's not that's going to rub you some way. It's going to affect you. We do church discipline because it grieves us and we have to address it. We practice church discipline to warn the sinner. Look at verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That's a heavy statement because church discipline is doing this. It's saying this is the family of God. If someone in there is acting like they belong to the family of Satan, put him back. Why? Present an earthly picture of an eternal reality. Tell this person, look, while you are still breathing, you are out of the kingdom. The only time you have to get back is now, because when you stop breathing, you will be eternally in the wrong kingdom. It's a warning. And it's not just a warning for warning's sake. He says, put them in, the, in Satan's realm for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Do you catch it? Hell is horrible and it is completely avoidable. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, let me remind you, hell is horrible. Hell is the kind of place that after 10 trillion years of being there, you will realize you're no closer to the end of this thing than when you started. It's eternal. But it's avoidable. If today you would turn away from your sin and trust in him. He will save you. He will hold you. He will change you. And in eternity, you will love and enjoy him and his people forever. I pray that that would be you today, that you'd run away from the kingdom of Satan, that church discipline would help you and I do that even for that person. The other reason that Paul gives here is to protect the sheep. Part of why we do church discipline, part of why we practice church discipline, is so that especially the younger believers don't think sin is just okay. Because sin travels through a congregation like yeast travels through bread really quickly. That when younger Christians see, oh, that guy is older and he's doing it, I guess it's fine. Oh, the whole church is endorsing this? Like where the whole church was endorsing this man's sin? Oh, I guess it's fine. I guess I can do the same. And God is like, no. I think it was Spurgeon who said, the problem with sin is that's the thing that got my best friend killed. I will not trifle with it. And that's the attitude that scripture is trying to inculcate here. Here's the biggest one. When we love, 
because we are doing all of this out of love, love for God, love for others, and especially a love to see the holiness and high honor of Jesus' name upheld in the community. We want to present a good witness. Guys, church discipline is good for unbelievers. It's good for them to see, oh, there's actually a difference between light and darkness. Many of you know Pastor Aubrey has been witnessing to um, one of his friends, a guy called Wakar, and he's been here many times. He's come for our congregational prayer services, and he has recognized that there is truth he cannot turn away from, that scripture is true. He has some theological questions, unsurprisingly, but he recognizes the truth in it. He also recognizes the depth of community we have here at ECC. And he's like, he's in the last, one of the, uh, the past prayer meetings, he says he's never seen that kind of love and camaraderie between such different people. But he al always stops Aubrey and asks, one, one of my biggest questions, Aubrey, is how come Christians get to live however they want? You say that you're following Jesus, but I know Christians who live worse than me. What's up with that? And you can almost see Aubrey's face collapse like, okay, here we go. He, he almost wants to apologize on behalf of all Christians everywhere. I apologize that we have not been doing church discipline. And he has to explain to him, no, the Bible has a formal process of saying these ones are in the light, these ones are in the darkness. So these people might claim that they are Christians, but they actually need to be put back into the darkness until they truly come into the light by faith. Church discipline is telling the world, whoa, that person does not have our affirmation to represent Jesus Christ. Church discipline out of love for that person is saying, we hope you come home. Church discipline out of love for King Jesus is saying, we want to have a good witness of who Jesus is. Church discipline out of love is saying, come back, come back to the fold. So how important is holiness to you and I? How important is holiness in terms of our getting rid of everything that we know displeases God? How concerned are we about the holiness of the body of Christ here at ECC? When members of the church are unloving or unforgiving, does that grieve us? Does it break our hearts when members of the church are gossips and gluttons? When they are more interested in pleasing themselves and getting possessions than pleasing God and having spiritual riches? Does it grieve us when members of the church dishonor their parents and are self-absorbed and self-promoting when they glibly divorce their spouses? Does it grieve us when members of the church are difficult and divisive, when they're given to profanity and pornography? Does it break our hearts? If it doesn't, today's a good day to pray, Lord, Pour in my heart a love for ECC. Pour in my heart a love for my fellow Christians that will compel me to act. Because church discipline is like a rescue mission. It's like you're seeing someone about to drive off the cliff and you wave your hands and say, stop, stop. Because if you love someone and you're seeing them drive off the cliff, you don't say, oh, that's unfortunate shame. <laughs> no, if you have to put your body in the way you will, right? That's church discipline. It's saying, I'm not going to sit around and do nothing and let you comfortably go to hell. Not on my watch. Now the question is, when do we do it? Do we do it for every single sin? Well, 
we should practice church discipline when the sin is outward, serious, and unrepentant. Right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you see that this man's sin was outward. It was well known that this person is involved in this sin with his own stepmother. It needs to be an outward sin. So as the final court of judgment called the church, when we render judgment, it's based on evidence that we can see and hear, not stuff that we are not sure of. We exercise church discipline when it is outward sin, when it is serious sin. The serious sin, the only way you can describe what's happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, is disgusting. A man sleeping with his father's wife. That's the only word you can use to describe that. Even unbelievers would call it disgusting. It's that serious. It is so serious, it is completely out of step with the life of a believer. Now, Christians sin, right? But the sins that need to go through this formal process need to be open. Christians sin, but the sin that needs to go through this formal process of church discipline needs to be serious. There's a difference between getting angry at your wife and beating your wife. The change in gravity means we can't leave that unaddressed. And lastly, Christians sin but the sins that need to go through this formal process of church discipline need to be unrepentant. That's Matthew 18. It doesn't matter if one goes, if two goes, if four go, if the whole church goes. This person loves their sin more than they love the son. And same thing with 1 Corinthians 5. It is clear from how well it is known that this person is not interested in following after Jesus. When there's no repentance, likely the person needs to be shown that they might belong to a different kingdom and not the kingdom of God. In Romania, in mainly between the 60s and the 90s, the cultural Christians of the day had a word for the real or true evangelical, evangelical Christians of the day. They used to call them the pokait. It's actually a derogatory term, or in plural, pokaiti. These pokait, that word means the repenters. The irony is, that's exactly what a Christian is. A Christian is a repenter. There's someone who goes to war with their sin and are constantly repenting. So when there's a lack of repentance, that means the steps of church discipline need to be taken. And to be clear, the Bible has a category for immediate church discipline. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, Paul is not saying go through the process. He's saying do this now because it has been established that this person is characteristically unrighteous and characteristically unrepentant. There are, there are two lists, two groups, two camps, if you will, that Paul has in his mind in 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6. So look, look there with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. And see if you can see the similarity between chapter 5, verse 11, and chapter 6, verse 9 to 10. Paul speaking says, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, sounds like Jesus in Matthew 18, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. Chapter 6 from verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunk, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Did you catch it? You saw those similarities? Paul is saying these people are marked by these things. They are characterized by these things. In fact, these are not adjectives. He uses them as nouns. The sexually immoral, the swindlers, the idolaters. 
in contrast to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, and such were some of you, but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Yes, you might have been that. That's what you were. That is not what you are. You are washed. You're different. You're no longer that. You are this. You're no longer marked by those things. Now, might you fall into some of those things? Yes. But you will not be characterized by those things. Many of you have, have, have heard me use this example. In my country and in the African savannah, there's this thing called a dung beetle. Yes, it sounds like its name. It looks for dung. It turns dung into little balls. And if you're ever paying close attention in the savannah, you'll see these little animals with round balls basically shoveling dung across the savannah. But there's also ladybirds where I come from. They're these beautiful red beetles with black spots, and you will almost always find them around a lot of water and greenery. Can a ladybird fall into dung? Yes. But it will absolutely hate the dung. If you put a dung beetle in a nice, green, clean place, the first thing it will try and do is go back to the dung. Can a Christian fall into sin? Yes. But they can't stand it. It's one of the ways we know who a Christian is, according to 1 John chapter 3. They repent. They run away. They're disgusted by their own sin. They, they're not happy there. Right? And church discipline is saying, when we see you act a little more like a dung beetle, it might be because you are. When we see you act comfortable in Satan's realm, we have a responsibility out of love to say, we need to put you out and not have you in. You're characteristically unrighteous and unrepentant. And I know you know this, ECC, because we had to deal with that a couple of months ago. There was a person who said he was a brother, was actually baptized in this church. He seemed to be saying and doing and living the right way. But in time, we discovered he, he didn't tell a lie. His whole life was built on a lie. Nothing about his past, it seemed, was true. Nothing about the job he claimed he once had was true. In fact, he successfully managed to, in his own mind, and to all of us, make us think that his whole family was assassinated, essentially, for the Christian faith. And then it came out that all of that was a lie. And when confronted, he wanted nothing to do with us, nothing to do with Jesus. In fact, it turned out that he had been practicing a different religion the whole time. And it was hard. It was hard to put him out. But it would have been an act of hatred if we didn't. It would have been an act of hatred to tell him, oh yeah, you'll end up in heaven. That would have been an act of hatred. No, the loving thing to do is to say, we can no longer affirm that you are on the same path as Jesus and his people. And that sounds big and extreme, right? Like, yeah, 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 of course, we should discipline for that. But guys, you recognize something like willful, unrepentant neglect of attending church is in that same category. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 talks about not neglecting the gathering, the assembling of the saints. And then right after that, arguably the heaviest warning in the whole New Testament is given. 
talking about trampling the Son of God underfoot, talking about that for those who go on deliberately sinning after receiving the knowledge of truth, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. The Lord judges his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That, that's talking about not coming to church. That at least the way I grew up and most of us grew up, I'm willing to assume, we never thought, meh, that's not a big deal. Turns out it actually is. I've, I've come to see that a lack of gathering tends to reveal a very cold heart. One that doesn't care about loving Jesus because Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And it's blatantly disobeying a command. It's open. It's serious based on the judgment. And when it's unrepentant, it seems to display a cold heart. It seems to display someone who doesn't care about the main discipling time of their life. It seems to expose someone who robs his siblings of the blessing that he or she is. It seems to expose that this person is being influenced by something other than King Jesus and King Jesus' word. It shows the poor testimony to the world that, yeah, God calls for our meeting and we don't show up. And I've come to find out that it also exposes someone has probably been struggling with something that they didn't want us to know and didn't want anyone else to know. The issue is not that they're unable to come, it's that they're unwilling to come. And just between us, ECC, I don't know why this is the case, but it tends to be us dudes. For whatever reason, I understand we all came to the UAE for work. I understand that. And some of us have bizarre work schedules. I totally understand that. But for whatever reason, among us men, maybe it's our need to provide. We are unwilling to tell our employer, look, I, I can't come on a Sunday morning between these hours because I'm going to church. I'm actually a Christian. We, we seem not to trust that the Lord will let that information land how it lands and he will continue providing for us. Because I assure you, he cares more about your provision than you do. He cares more about sustaining you and I than we do. They are members of this church. They are elders of this church who have had to tell their bosses, sorry, I can't come to church, I can't come to work between these hours, I will be sure to be there right after I go to church on Sunday morning. And how do you think their bosses reacted? I'll tell you, they were like, oh, okay. There are members of this church who have gone to their employers with letters from ECC saying, would you please let this individual come to church? And their bosses go, oh, you're a Christian, eh? That's great, you probably won't steal from me, go to church. Do you see? What is church discipline? It's correcting sin. Why? Because we love God and we love one another. When do we do church discipline? When do we practice church discipline? When the sin is open, serious, and unrepentant. And lastly, how? How do we practice church discipline? Well, we start small and we take it from there. The whole logic of Matthew chapter 18 is that we want to keep the circle small. In fact, if on a one-on-one -on -one conversation this can happen and be done with, that's it. And let me encourage you, by the way, 80, in my humble estimation, like 80% of correcting sin happens in one-on-one -on -one conversations where there's no need to escalate anything, no need to bring anyone else, no need to go to the church, because if you are a repenter and the person is coming to you to give feedback with a gentle and kind and warm spirit for your good, there's no reason why I wouldn't say, actually, I think you're right. 
recently, this, <laughs> this happened to a friend of mine. There was a festival, a religious festival being celebrated. And there's a common saying they say during that religious festival. And this group of Christians, two or three of them said, happy, whatever the religious festival was. And he, without thinking, said, actually, we shouldn't be telling people that because they're worshiping a false god. We don't mean for them to have a happy that festival. And they were like, yeah, sounds right. I'll stop saying that. You see what happened? They were corrected. No need for escalation. This is not going to come to the elders. It just it ends there. But if symptoms persist, bring two or three others. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18. That the other reason we are bringing two others to talk to this brother is we are saying, hey, am I seeing this right? Maybe it's me. Am I seeing this right? Is this sin actually in this person's heart? Are we misunderstanding? And if even then symptoms persist, this is where I would say Christian prudence calls you and I to involve the elders. If you've gone on your own, it hasn't worked. You've gone with two or three others, it hasn't worked. I would say now you really need to call in the elders and say, we don't know what to do. Galatians 6.1 again says, you who are spiritual, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him with a spirit of gentleness. Now, that phrase in Galatians 6 doesn't mean the elders, like the elders are the only spiritual ones. No, it's referring to those who are spiritually mature. And that's a good place to call in the elders. That's why they're called elders, because there's a spiritual maturity about them. And when you come to your elders, we are not going to smash you over your sin. Sometimes I feel like people look at elders and think we're just kind of gliding across the Arabian Peninsula in holiness. That's not happening, man. <laughs> we are painfully aware of our own sin. We are painfully aware that we are not adequate to the task, if you will. So from one sinner to another, we will treat you with the gentleness that a shepherd treats sheep with. A bruised reed we will not break. God doesn't break, neither would we. And if even then it doesn't work with the elders, then now we expand it to the whole church. But again, 80% of this happens just on one-on-one -on -one conversations. The only time that we need to bring it immediately is if there's a danger to the public witness of Christ, 1 Corinthians 5, if there's a danger of division in the church, Titus 3.10 says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice have nothing to do with him. That there's an immediacy concerning division. Now, I know, again, that doesn't seem like a big deal. Like, really? We warned this guy once. After a little while later, we warned him against because he was being, being divisive and then we have nothing to do with him. Yes, God takes that seriously. Why? If you're a parent of five children and one of your children creates a political party with three of the other children against one of the other children. In other words, it is four against one. And these four are always bullying, berating, hating, criticizing him. As a parent, would you let that fly? You'd be like, oh, that's okay, you know, boys will be boys. No. You're going to deal with that. You can hardly think of anything worse than that, right? God is a perfect father. If we start a camp over here against that camp over there or against that brother over there, he's not going to let that slide. And he warns you deal with that. Warn them once, warn them twice, have nothing to do with the person. Nothing. 
The third case in which there's immediacy is if there's danger of false teaching. Second John 10 to 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, i.e. the gospel, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wickedness. In other words, where a false teacher or someone introducing false doctrine into the church is concerned, there's an immediacy about how we deal with them. And right there you're going, that's awkward. Yes, it is awkward. It is very awkward. How do we deal with someone who's been excommunicated? Well, aside from the cases of division and false teaching where we have nothing to do with them, with everyone else, we treat them like an unbeliever. It doesn't mean we stop having a relationship with them. It does mean we stop having fellowship with them. We don't give them the impression that, no, you're still a Christian like me. That we are intentional in our relationship to show them, actually, you need to repent. Please repent. Please come back home. You're no longer a brother or sister. I can't call you that anymore. But I really want you to be a brother or sister. And the goal should be their repentance. Basically, the nature of our relationship with someone who's been disciplined is that it should be different. Intentionally pointing toward their need for repentance. What is discipline? correcting sin. Why? Because we love God and we love one another. When do we do it? When the sin is open, serious, and unrepentant. How do we do it? Starting small and keeping it small until we need to escalate it. And you might be there thinking, okay, so once someone is excommunicated, bye-bye, be warm and well-fed, we'll never see you again. No. Is there hope of restoration? Yes. Praise God, as long as there is breath in their lungs, there is hope of restoration. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 shows us how we restore someone who has been excommunicated. And in the interest of time, I'll read it for you from verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused you pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. Pause. Did you catch the phrase, the punishment by the majority? That's the Church acted to remove someone from membership. Maybe it was even the same guy who had committed adultery. They acted to remove him, and there might not have been 100% unanimity, but the majority did that. The majority acted to remove him. Now look what the majority acts to do, verse 7. So you, the church, should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excess sorrow. So I beg of you, reaffirm your love for him, that restoration means we are declaring, the same way we declared someone cannot be affirmed as a Christian, now we are declaring forgiveness toward the person and reaffirming them as a citizen of the kingdom of God. It's a call to forgive publicly. It's a call to comfort and reaffirm someone publicly. And can you imagine how beautiful it is if someone who had been excommunicated comes back what would our reaction be? Ah, oh, we don't want you here. No, oh, it's like welcome home. Like the prodigal son's father. Our arms are always open and ready to have you back home. In uh, one of the churches I served in, there was a lady who was engaged in gross sexual immorality with her boyfriend, and nothing seemed to work, and the church was forced to remove her from membership. And unsurprisingly, her boyfriend uh, seemed to have multiple relationships with multiple women. And after a long period of seeing how horrible the realm of Satan is, 
in the words of the prodigal son, she came to herself and realized, this, is, this can't be what God has for me. I am a sinner. I need to run to Christ and be forgiven. And when she eventually came home to the church, and the church welcomed her back in, you couldn't see a dry eye in that room. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're the person who's been excommunicated from some church somewhere. Maybe you're the person who, maybe you're not formally excommunicated, but the last church you were in said, we'd rather not have you here. Well, as long as there's breath in your lungs, Jesus isn't done with you. And you can come back home. And when you do, this group of forgiven sinners and repenting sinners offer themselves as a family to you. So as we close, a couple of questions I want us to ask. Number one, will we ask God for a depth of love for our fellow members? That's the prayer of Romans 15. That Lord, I, I just I need you to pour love into my heart. Yeah. Pray that prayer. He will answer. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean you have warm, fuzzy, sentimental feelings for everyone in the church. It does mean you're always seeking their highest good in Christ. So will we ask God to give us that kind of love? Question number two. Will we build in the church strength of relationships and depth and strength of relationships that can bear the weight of correction? It's a lot easier for you to correct me and me to correct you when we already have a friendship going. I know where you're coming from with it. You know where I'm coming from with it. We can have an open conversation. But if the first conversation I'm having with you is Hulk smash, like, okay, man, right? But we have to be willing to do the hard work of building that relationship. Last question. When necessary, will we love the sinner, and the Lord in obediently removing an unrepentant sinner from the membership of the church for their good, for our good, and for the glory of Christ. Ultimately, church discipline is an act of love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Lord, I pray that today you would give us the strength, the commitment, the love that compels us to correct sin because we love one another. And Lord, grant that if there are any here who are still in Satan's realm, that you may bring them home, that they would hear your voice, that you'd bring them to life, that they'd turn away from sin and trust in you, and never face excommunication from you, you who was cut off for them, that they'd never be cut off from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.